You're listening to a Dharma talk from Sunday Morning Zen, a program of the Zen Life and Meditation Center of Chicago. So I thought I would start the talk with this uh, quote, which I think is just a great quote for this. Each of you is perfect the way you are, and you can use a little improvement. <laughs> um, that resonates pretty, uh, pretty deeply with me. Um, and uh, I think that it's sort of a paradox for us to appreciate that we are perfect the way we are. We are, we, there's nothing more that we need to do. We need to open ourselves to what, who and what we are to our own basic goodness. And even though that's true, we can still improve. We, we don't need to sort of sit on our laurels. We don't need to be resigned um, or accept. Uh, I guess we do need to accept, but we don't need, acceptance doesn't need to mean resignation. So when I um, agreed to, to teach today or to give this talk today, it was early on in the, um, the COVID-19 um, sort of quarantine, the lockdown, the shutdown, whatever you want to call it. And I thought to myself, well, what do I want to teach on? What do I want to talk about? And um, I knew for myself that patience was something that was really important. It was something that I was really needing to um, appreciate and cultivate more for myself. And so that's why I decided on this talk, the, the perfection of patience. And what I'd like to do is start out by just sharing a little bit about the perfections generally, and then we'll dive into uh, the perfection of patience. And I've built in some time for us to have conversation um, and comments and questions throughout but if there um, are specific questions that come up while I'm talking, um, to the extent that I can see you raise your hand, um, I'll do my best to get uh, to call on you. So I wanna share that there's two books that I primarily used um, in uh, developing this. One of them is Norman Fisher's um, The World Could Be Otherwise. Can you see that? Um, that's one that's a, it's a new book of Norman Fisher's and he talks about the perfections, the six perfections. And then I also used this one by Daniel Wright. Um, it's uh, Buddhism and the Cultivation of Character, the Six Perfections. Um, Norman Fisher's is a book is fabulous and um, maybe a little more accessible um, it's a little easier to uh, read. This one is totally easy to read. It's just that it's a little bit denser, and so you have to really give yourself a lot of time to go through this one, but it is really rich and full of um, important information. So for Buddhists, uh, a primary responsibility and opportunity um, that we have is the deliberate shaping of the quality and the character of our life. Um, answering such questions or asking such questions as how shall I live? As what kind of person? And Buddhists say that this is our singular freedom, that it's a freedom available to no other beings in the universe to be able to have both that responsibility and that opportunity. And the six perfections lie sort of at the center of this practice of self-cultivation. The perfections are ideals of character, human qualities that are considered truly admirable 
and important, if not essential, to enlightenment. And the six qualities are, let me share this so you can see it. Uh, so are you seeing that even though it's not full screen? <laughs> Generosity, ethical conduct, or sometimes called morality, tolerance or patience, energy, or as uh, Norman Fisher calls it, joyful effort, meditation, and wisdom or understanding. So those are the six perfections. The, these perfections are both a means and an end. We train in these qualities in our daily life, and they are also naturally present in one who is enlightened. So they are both something that we practice on a daily basis, and they're also something that will, qualities that will naturally um, be present when we are enlightened. Wright says that training in the perfections is the very meaning of enlightenment. And he goes on to say that in other words, enlightenment isn't a thing. It's not a place we get to. Enlightenment isn't a fixed point. It's dynamic and it's ever unfolding. The quote he says is, the quest for enlightenment is ongoing, not because we never attain greater insight or comprehension, but because in ascending to a higher level, we become capable of envisioning something even greater beyond where we currently stand. So it's, it's we're never going to get there because there's no there to get to. We're, we're constantly in a process of unfolding in enlightenment, which I really, really love. Um, the beneficiary, beneficiary of your practice is, of course, not only you, but everyone you come in contact with, all sentient beings. So this is why this is so important for us to practice in these, uh, in these six perfections. So when I started thinking about this... Um, talk as well, you know, on the one hand, I thought, well, maybe I can just do um, a few minutes, uh, a few minutes on all six, so that people have a complete view of the six perfections. And then I thought, well, no, you know, I, this is my tendency, I tend to bite off more than I can chew, you know, rather than giving people something um, chewable, I, I give too much. And so I was like, no, let's just stick with the patients like I had originally intended. And then the more I kept reading about this, I thought, oh my goodness, <laughs> even one perfection is too much to do in an hour. It's really rich and really complex. I hope that there's enough here that um, some of you might uh, be encouraged uh, to begin looking at the perfections on your own and see how rich they are for learnings for us. But let's, let's go ahead and start talking about the, the perfection of patience or tolerance. And I'll use those two words interchangeably. This, uh, the Sanskrit word for this perfection is called kasante. And it has been translated as patience, tolerance, forbearance. Other translations are unaffected by, able to bear, and my favorite, constancy. Those who have trained well in this perfection are imperturbable, imperturbable, well-composed, calm and focused in the midst of adversity. 
It's very different from the sort of putting up with that the word patience can sometimes conjure, right? It's very different. When I think of patience, sometimes that's, I think of sort of a gritting of your teeth, putting up with something that you don't, you're tolerating it. And these words, I think, really elicit something very different from that. Um, through deliberate self-cultivation, one builds the capacity to withstand suffering and injustice, to resist the onslaught of negative emotions, and to think clearly under the stress of turmoil. So when we are practicing this perfection well, we are able to remain clear in our thinking in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of upset, in the midst of irritation. And that's really so key to our being able to behave skillfully, is to be clear and not to be coming from a clouded, reactive mind. Without clarity of mind, we can't be discerning. And if we're not being discerning, we are definitely not being skillful. We're just coming from a reactive place. So it goes without saying that the mental attitudes of intolerance and impatience take a huge toll on us and for those that we interact with. Um, in, in Daniel Wright's book, he talks about a personal story. He says he talks about being annoyed with his son who wasn't able to do something as quickly as he, the author, was able to do. He says, although I hastened to disguise it, I know my impatience is displayed for him to see in my attitude, my rigidity, and my shortness of temper. And he goes on to share that his son has a disability and that he knows intellectually that, his, that he is genetically unable to move as quickly. And yet his own impatience overwhelms this knowledge. He says, it hardly matters that the harm done is not intended because it is done and I am its cause. So this is, that's just a very short story to, to let help us example, help us understand how important it is for us to practice in this patience, uh, in, this, in this perfection, so that we don't cause harm to ourselves and we don't cause harm to other people, even when we don't intend it. In uh, the Mahayana text, they, they divide this practice of perfection into three subcategories that I'll share with you. So there's cultivating the capacity to tolerate personal hardship. There's uh, the cultivating the capacity to tolerate changes in human relations. And there's cultivating the capacity to tolerate the truth about our human life. So those are three subcategories that we need to, to practice in. Um, and we're going to spend just a little bit of time with each of them. So cultivating the capacity to tolerate personal suffering. In this uh, category, we're talking about just our basic mental and physical suffering. It could be our day-to-day -day 
garden variety irritations, or it could be something much more serious um, that we've had to deal with, say, uh, a, a rupture in the family, a divorce, or a physical um, health problem. So it, could, it goes that entire continuum. Our practice here is to, one of the practices here with dealing with that kind of uh, personal suffering is to fine tune our awareness of suffering and its opposite so that we see the inevitable alteration between these two poles. In other words, impermanence. So one of the things we wanna do when we're feeling suffering is to be aware of and, and practice throughout our lives an acknowledgement, a realization, a recognition of impermanence. So that when we are in joyful, pleasant, wonderful situations, remembering that this too shall be impermanent, this too shall pass. And just as when we're in suffering, that it too will pass. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean it's gonna be passed back to wonderful, but it's going to change in some way, in some, um, some type of variation will occur. So it's important for us to remember that when we're in suffering. Once you deeply appreciate impermanence, there can be a softening towards suffering, knowing that it will change in some way. Shanti Davis teaching about this, I'm sure many of you have heard this um, quote before. If there is a solution to your problem, then what is the point of dejection? And what is the point of dejection if there is no solution? There is nothing desirable in the state of dejection. So let me just repeat that again. If there is a solution to your problem, then what is the point of dejection? And what is the point of dejection if there is no solution? There is nothing desirable in the state of dejection. So really understanding what is in your power to shift. And if there is something to move toward that. And if there really isn't anything, then to recognize that there, there isn't and just to, to learn to not resist your current situation, whatever it is. Uh, a practice by Norman Fisher in his book that he uh, encourages for this particular um, category of suffering or uh, perfection is important. He says it's important to practice tolerance in more neutral settings prior to the tougher situations to build the patient's muscle, if you will. His example is to practice with physical discomfort in meditation. So when we're sitting, all of us experience, um, you know, some little itches, some pains, some uh, discomfort in a muscle or a joint. And what uh, Norman Fisher is saying is he said, when that happens, if you want to practice the perfection of patience, he says, in those situations, don't move. Don't adjust, even though you want to. Gradually train your mind to stay close to the unpleasant sensation and the thoughts that inevitably go with them. Doing this will quickly show you how the mind runs away when it doesn't like what's going on. So as I was thinking about this, he's actually giving you practice with physical and mental suffering. 
Now, I don't think he's talking about if you have a bad back that you shouldn't move when you're sitting. Um, you know, you need to do what's important to your own physical health for sure. I think he's talking about um, just sort of the normal discomfort that you that we all feel when we sit. And can we sit with it just a little longer before we make a move? And if we do, if we manage to sit with it just a little longer, then what we can also notice is not only the physical discomfort we're living with, but as he says, our minds will start to kick off and talk to us about how much we don't like this and how it shouldn't be this way. So then we can practice with the mind. So I can see where this really is a good practice for us learning to deal with our own personal suffering. So the, ideal, the idea here is that only through suffering is there escape. We can't go around it, we can't bypass it, but directly we can acknowledge it and turn toward it, which all of us have heard in many different um, in, in many different variations if we've been coming to the Zen Center for any period of time. We wanna drop the blaming, the bemoaning, the victimization, just be open to the fact of suffering, to the discomfort. Even a subtle shift from I am suffering to saying there is suffering in my body now, there is suffering in my mind now can be helpful. Saying this is how it is right now. So I've, I've interestingly, I've listened to some podcasts and I've done readings as well. And this idea of shifting from I am suffering to there is suffering has come up several times. And it's just this subtle shift of putting a little distance between identifying your whole self with the particular suffering. And that shift, there is suffering, puts just a tiny little bit of distance that can help us sit with it a little bit longer and learn to be with it, learn to be with it. And the idea also of learning to practice with our suffering at low levels so that we are more prepared when we have something bigger that comes along makes a lot of sense to me. Norman Fisher says, once you get, this, get the point in your body and all the way to your heart and soul that avoiding pain, adjusting, blaming, and perseverating about it makes the pain worse, you see that facing pain with tolerance and dignity is much better. So I wonder if anybody has um, any comments or examples or thoughts about this that they'd like to share. This idea of turning towards our own pain and sitting with it. And whether that's worked for you. Brian, please. I just wanna say, Chris, that's spot on to how I handle my situation. It was, but putting whatever, what I do into words. It's, it's perfect. Yes. I'm, just, I'm just sitting here hanging on every word. It's like, yes, yes, that's it. That's how you do it. That's great. Wonderful. Thank you. You know, I, what I thought of is, um, what came to my mind was um, MBSR, which is Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. And it was, um, you know, that, that particular usage was developed by John Kabat-Zinn 
and it's now taught in uh, hospitals across the country. And while it's called mindfulness-based stress reduction, its original intent was to help people who were in chronic pain and had tried everything else and nothing was working. And this was a new um, program that was started probably 30 years ago to see if it could help chronic, people with chronic pain. And it doesn't make the pain go away, but it shifts your relationship to it. And I think that that's when I think about I am suffering versus there is suffering, that's shifting the relationship with pain or discomfort. So that was one example that came up for me where, um, where I think that this is meditation and a particular application of it um, aligns with this particular category. Yes, Susan, please. Okay, uh, what comes to mind is, I think either Eugene Gentleman, David Rome, this idea that part of me is suffering. So I recently drove across the country, I'm just back, and part of me was really scared to stop at a rest stop. Part of me was, thrilled to see my granddaughter. Part of me was suffering about what's happening in this country that I was witnessing, not in Chicago, but from other places. But the idea that part, you know, one does not become completely consumed with sorrow or suffering on some other level, fear. Part of me feels fear. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. Sure. So, so let's move on to the next, um, the next category. The next category is cultivating tolerance in human relations. So what I read was that from earliest Buddhist texts, a great deal of attention has been given to the ability to tolerate differences between human beings but always there's been a primary focus on anger and dealing with anger between uh, human beings. Um, constancy in dealing with others, that word constancy in dealing with others was regarded as an invaluable achievement. Um, and maintaining equanimity when others harm us or when we perceive harm is said to be a necessary condition for the spiritual life of a bodhisattva. Um, I had a little something I wanted to see. Let me see if I have it here. Yeah. So I love this little this little Zen story that I think really talks about constancy. It's uh, is that so? Oh my God. Okay. A beautiful Japanese girl whose parents owned a food store lived near him. Kim being a Zen master. Suddenly, without any warning, her parents discovered that the girl was with child. This made her parents very angry. She would not confess who the man was, but after much harassment, at last named Hakuin, who was the Zen master. 
We have a little bit of background noise. I'm not sure where that's coming from. It looks like everybody is muted. So, um, in great anger, the parents went to the Zen master. Is that so, was all he could say. After the child was born, it was brought to him, the Zen master. By this time, he had lost his reputation, which did not trouble him, but he took very good care of the child. He obtained milk from his neighbors and everything else the little one needed. A year later, the girl mother could stand it no longer. She told her parents the truth, that the real father of the child was a young man who worked in the fish market. The mother and father of the girl at once went to the Zen master to ask his forgiveness, to apologize at length and to get the child back. The Zen master was will, will, willing in yielding the child all he said was, is that so? I can hardly imagine being having that kind of equanimity in a situation that I would feel would be as unjust as being accused of something I didn't do, and then later um, to have something taken away from me. Um, but that's, that's what this perfection is pointing to, is can we build enough constancy to be able to deal with adversities without lashing out. Uh, Shantideva again, Shantideva again says the action of others, no matter how heinous, are not what makes us angry. The real cause of our anger is our own unwise reaction to the words or actions of others. And when we grab onto that anger, and I direct it toward you, then I'm gonna cause harm. I'm gonna create suffering. Now, some of you may be starting to think, hold on a second, aren't there some injustices against which we should act? And hold your thought on that because I'm gonna get back to it. But for a moment, let's just stay with our own anger and what we do with that. So the question becomes, what do we do when anger arises? And it will arise because anger is not gonna go away. It's, it's a natural emotion that emerges. It, the, the task is what we do with the anger, not, not that it, anger arises to begin with. So you can probably guess that the answer isn't to get rid of the anger, as I just said, or suppress it. Um, Fisher says, intimately being with anger when angry is the practice of patience. So let me say that again, because I think that for me, that was really important. Intimately being with anger when we are angry is the practice of patience. Now, maybe I was, you know, a little behind on this whole idea of patience, but I have typically thought of I'm being patient with another person. I'm being patient about their behavior. And what Fisher is saying is, no, 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 no. Intimately being with anger when we are anger is the practice of patience. So patience is being patient with our anger, with our irritation, with our upset. That's the practice, is being with ourselves. So we're being patient with anger itself. Now let me, um, Fisher has a wonderful, in his book, he has a wonderful um, 
outline of what to do with anger. So practicing anger in human relations. He says first, and we're actually gonna spend a little bit of time going through these, um, but I just wanna give you an overview first. Think about anger, just notice it. Say to yourself, this is anger. This is what it feels like. It's just like this. Breathe and consider. After the anger moment has passed, take a moment to investigate it. And finally, practice the precept, I vow to practice love, not to harbor ill will. So let's go through these. I think it's really useful. So the first one is think about anger. And Fisher says, read books, listen to talks, journal with friends, become as clear as you can about what anger is and how it appears in you and how it hurts or helps you. It's more complicated than it seems and it bears more investigation than we might think. For example, anger often is covering fear or anxiety. Anger can also be covering grief or sadness. So it's important to really get in touch with what does anger look like or feel like in yourself and how does it hurt or help you? And then he says, cultivate a desire not to be overtaken by anger. Again, it's not that it won't be there, but can we cultivate a desire to not be overtaken by it? When anger overwhelms us, we are controlled and dominated by it and therefore lack freedom of choice. So I love the fact that he starts that cultivated desire. So we're cultivating an intention and we can do that on a regular and daily basis, cultivating an intention not to be overtaken by anger. So all of this is done pre-anger situation, right? This is stuff we can do in the background to help us. And then in the situation, he says, just notice before rushing into blame and foolhardy words and deeds, notice the actual phenomenon of anger in yourself. How does it feel in this moment in your body? Be with your breathing and your heartbeat. So you're slowing things down a little bit. You're noticing that you're feeling the anger and you're just breathing for a moment. The next step he says, say to yourself, this is anger. This is what it feels like. It's just like this. When you do this, you're slowing things down. You're gently embracing anger. You're not pushing it away or getting hooked by it. You're, you want to resist the impulse to speak with aggression. And great one here, train yourself to ask for a pause. <laughs> If you're in a situation with someone that you can do that, train yourself to say, could we stop for just a moment here? I, I need to just get a hold of myself. I wanna make sure I can listen to you. So train yourself to ask for a pause. The next one um, is breathe and consider. Connect yourself to your ethical aspirations. You know, what are your ethical aspirations? To be kind and generous, to save all sentient beings? Um, I think about when I, when I was 
thinking about this particular step, which is actually not part of Norm, this step is not part of Norman Fisher's process. It's, it's kind of a compilation of things that I was reading that seemed like it fit really well here. Um, it seems very close to the grace model where you think, you know, uh, recall in the grace model, the R stands for recall your intention. In another uh, setting, I learned from someone that peaceful families, um, this was from Stephen Parker, who many of you know, and I heard him speak, peaceful families always prioritize the relationship over the issue. So when you're getting angry at someone, you can think about, do I wanna prioritize the issue and be right? Or do I wanna prioritize the relationship right now? So connect yourself to your aspirations. Call on your prefrontal cortex. Get curious about yourself and your reactions, the situation. Ask what else might be going on. You know, there's been research that's been done that when we're gonna be in an emotional flooding situation, if we can shift subtly and just get to a question about it, it kind of pulls the prefrontal cortex online. And so we can potentially avoid getting hooked and hijacked by the amygdala and that reactive system. So try to get curious, intellectually curious, not a question about like, you know, why the heck is he doing that? That's not the kind of question I'm talking about. I'm talking about really sort of taking a researcher's point of view and saying, what's going on here? This is really interesting. And then finally, recall the Buddhist concept of dependent arising. Since all people are shaped by factors that lie outside their control, contemplating factors that have led others to behave badly can soften our anger. In other words, you know, we can have compassion for the other person. We know that they too have suffering. We know that they too want to be happy. And if we can try to recall some of that, that can help us in, in our situation. Um, after the anger moment has passed, take a moment to investigate it. So bring it into your meditation, journaling, or some other form of reflection. Use that curiosity again. What just happened there? What might have been going on that I wasn't aware of? And then remember your bodhisattva commitment to identify affectionately, compassionately with everyone you meet. You may not be feeling that in the moment, but reinforce to yourself that that is your commitment and that you're going to get there eventually. So you're recalling to mind your intention. And then finally, he talks about practicing the bodhisattva precept of I vow to practice love, not to harbor ill will. So notice if you have any remaining angry thoughts and resentments after the interaction. And instead of justifying them or judging them, remind yourself that though they're here now, they won't always be here. That's that impermanence piece again. Recall your commitment to one day be entirely free of this, this anger or this resentment, however distant that day may be. And practice loving kindness for the person or persons involved, including yourself, to soften some of what's going on.
Did any of that seem useful to you guys? Any comments about that? Yeah. I think it can really, when I went through that, I, I thought that could really be useful for the first one too. I don't have to be in interaction with someone else in order to use those steps. I could just be in conflict with myself and still go through those steps. All of it is pointing towards sort of sitting with your emotion, whatever it is, and being curious about it, not judging it, um, not needing it to be different than it is, really um, appreciating it for, for this is where I'm at, this is it. This is what my life is right now. Uh, Chris? Yes. I wanted to add um, one thing. You know, when anger arises, there are physical things that happen in your body as well, right? Biochemical, uh, hormonal release, you know, when your amygdala is um, triggered, right? And you have this rush of adrenaline. So I think it's really interesting and important to notice what's going on physically. And you may not understand what that means, but just to notice. And I just love the part about loving kindness toward yourself at that time and your feelings, you know? I mean, yeah, anger is one of the three poisons. It's always going to arise. And I don't think that we're going to get to a point that we will never be angry. So I think we have to be really kind of gentle with ourselves when that happens. Thank you, June. I think I, those are great comments. Um, Wright says that understanding is always the solvent that cools our anger and directs us to more constructive relations. And meditation is the womb in which understanding is nurtured. So he really is pointing to meditation as one of the key supports for us as we learn to deal with anger. One last thing about anger with other people that I just want to read from Fisher. If any of you have um, read Fisher before, you know that he is just this um, down-to-earth, practical, really understands life kind of guy. And I love this, this chapter, or this paragraph, I'm sorry. He says, and it's about hurtful people. Hurtful people are precious because they're rare. It's true, more or less nice people are commonplace. Most people are decent and fairly polite. Life goes on. But a really rude and disturbing person is unusual. If you are lucky enough to have such a person in your life, you should regard them as a treasure because they will consistently do for you what most people won't. They will stir up your anger, resentment, and other difficult emotions, which will force you to practice patience. And since patience is the best way to increase your storehouse of precious virtue, these rotten, nasty individuals are especially to be appreciated. There's a different way to think about the people in your life who caused you grief. I love Norman Fisher. I wanna, I'm looking at the time, so I'm gonna have to move a little bit more quickly here. I wanna jump back to the question about whether this perfection means we must simply accept injustice or harm. And it's interesting, historically, it is the case that there were many Buddhist teachers 
who were quite deliberate in maintaining tolerance in all situations, even to the point of their own death, that there was nothing for which you should retaliate or act, act toward. But there are alternative lines of thought. Um, from one Buddhist monk, practicing patience means not getting upset and remaining calm, but does not demand that you allow yourself to be manipulated or exploited by others and their disturbing emotions. And Norman Fisher says, trying to practice love and compassion and letting go of anger doesn't mean acquiescing when harm is done, especially when others are being hurt. A bodhisattva would never stand by and let that happen. A bodhisattva practices radical acts of protection, which sometimes may be forceful. But force is avoided, if at all possible, in favor of any, any gentler method that stands even a slight chance of working. Even when forceful methods seem necessary, they are applied without anger or hatred, but rather sadness, strength, and an eye to eventual healing as soon as the conflict abates. And I wanted to read something from this book um, related to this that I thought was really powerful. Just a paragraph. Martin Luther King's nonviolent resistance to racism was inspired by Gandhi's example and by Thich Nhat Hanh, whose opposition to the Vietnam War was based in part on the Buddhist perfection of tolerance. The killing practiced by all sides in Vietnam brought Thich Nhat Hanh to his feet in opposition. With astonishing energy, he worked to put an end to the violence that war would only intensify. But what drove him toward this goal was not anger. Instead, it was a profound sadness about the unnecessary suffering and ignorance of humanity and a hopeful vision for what might come to be instead. These emotions fueled a passionate resolve to act. The motivating passion was compassion rather than hatred or anger. So it, the key seems to be that our actions should never emerge from a reactive, angry mind, but from a clear mind, clear about our motivations, our intentions, and our aspirations. Because a clear mind can be discerning about appropriate reactions, or I'm sorry, appropriate actions. And then uh, finally, let me just close with tolerating the last category, tolerating the truth about our human life. We all get sick, we all grow old, and we all die, and we all suffer losses. Everyone and everything we hold dear, we will lose. We generally think later, that's going to happen at some point, but it's going to be later, and I'll figure out how to deal with it. But that may not be so. The practice of tolerance cultivates a courage that allows us to look clearly and directly at reality without our filters and our projections and not being frightened or turning back. This is also about cultivating the ability to exp experience the full force of the insight of no self and emptiness and non-dualism, which we obviously don't have time to get into today. Um, Wright states that patience in this category is also about practicing our tolerance for uncertainty, 
and says that when we do so, we perfect our ability to be at ease with others who are different from us, those whose views do not con concur with our own. And Fisher says it takes deep and patient forbearance to accept our human vulnerability, that we die, that we are at the mercy of time and the world, that our narrow self-view can, can't really be all right, that we have to expand far beyond our comfort zone in understanding ourselves and the world. So none of the readings I had had a lot to say about what, how we practice this, but our, you know, meditation certainly expands our openness and our clarity and our ability to sit with uncertainty. It also made me think about training in the preliminaries from the Lojong training, you know, the rarity and preciousness of human life, the absolute inevitability of death, the awesome and indelible power of our actions and the inescapability of suffering. These are things we have to contemplate and reflect on and not shy away from. They're important to our well-being today. And just as I think of, I tend to think of Sharon Salzberg as the loving kindness guru. I think of Pema Chodron as the uncertainty guru. A lot of her teachings are about living with the fundamental ambiguity of being human is one of the ways she talks about it. Um, and I just brought two of her books. This book, Living Beautifully, talks about the fundamental ambiguity of being human and how that is the normal state for humans is ambiguity, a groundlessness. And then the places that scare you. She just has a way of talking about um, of living with uncertainty and learning to not always try to get closure for ourselves, but begin to appreciate that uncertainty is, is where humans live. So just to wrap up quickly, um, I'm beginning to think about uh, the practice of patience in terms of this constancy. And I see how relevant the three peacemaker tenets are also to this practice. You know, adopting an attitude of not knowing, especially when I think I do. Most especially when I think I know the right answer to something, I should step back and adapt. Do I really know what's going on here? So pause, I think about pausing and stopping the story in my head. Then second, to bear witness to what arises in myself, in my mind, and as June is saying, in my body, and to stay with it, not to turn away in fear or in anger or in hurt. And from this, to be curious about what is really going on for me. And then finally, trusting that loving action can emerge from this, that skillful action can emerge if I allow it to. So that is what I have. There is so much richness and so much depth to this practice. I know for myself, I um, intend to continue to read about it because it is so rich and I can see how it filters out into so many different areas of my Zen practice. But I'd love to hear if anybody has comments or thoughts or examples they'd like to share. And if not, 
It is a absolutely beautiful day today. One of the prettiest days, I think, temperature-wise and humidity-wise, we're going to get for a while. So I hope you all have something you can do to enjoy yourself today. Robin, did you want to say something? I did. Um, in a meeting recently, a client said something that I thought was so great. In terms of the um, virus, he said that he realized he needed to shift his thinking or way of being. And he needed to shift to allowing and adapting instead of waiting for, some, for it to end. And I thought that was so great because, you know, if we're in um, the kind of state of being of waiting for something to end, it's like we're sitting there tapping our fingers. Well, 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 you know, instead of the allowing and adapting, which fits so well with everything that you said, I think, Chris. Yeah. Thanks and, for that, Robin. Yeah. And I just want to thank you. I thought it was a Fabulous talk. Thank you so much. And I'm, I'm just noticing that there's been a lot going on in the chat box. As a speaker, I kind of ignore that while I'm talking. So all of you might want to take a look. It's, it's, um, there's some nice comments there from others. So please be sure to take a look before you leave. And again, I just want to share with you the two books. This is the Norman Fisher book, The World Could Be Otherwise. And the other one I used um, was this Six Perfections by Daniel Wright. Okay, um, Diane? Chris, um, fantastic talk. Thank you so much. That was, that was really lovely and very skillful. And I really appreciated, you know, the different way that you described patients, that it's not just sort of the gritting your teeth. And, and putting up with something while you're kind of boiling and roiling inside, that it's really the process of getting to the place of equanimity and compassion. I mean, you know, a lot of Buddhist teachings talk about you can engage in a wrathful action, which has a lot of energy and force, but it comes from a place of love and compassion. And oftentimes when we engage in angry actions, it comes from places of selfishness, it's ego-driven. It feels very, very different that when it's it's open, it's it's an opening from our heart, versus you know like the small self that needs to be pleased and uh, and adored. So um, I I love the description and, and Norman Fisher. That the book is phenomenal. Um, so thank you. It was it was a beautiful talk. Yeah, and thanks for that sort of clarification. Not if not clarification, at least saying a little bit more about the, those, the distinction about coming, about acting. We can act. It's just where are we acting from? Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, I, I wanted to um, just um, piggyback on that some. Um, I love how the, the compassion piece and the self-compassion piece, so the intimately being with our anger and also getting to know it and understand it, what it's about, what, our, what its impact on us is really. And the way you summarized how we spoke of, there's usually a couple of different other 
feelings that are underneath the anger. So the sadness or fear, oftentimes shame. So that really gives us a um, direction that it's a, it's a job of working with ourselves, being there with ourselves with compassion and love, as well as understanding. And it's, it's not an easy fix. It's a process mm -hmm. over time that then helps us um, be more skillful because we've been in relationship with ourselves and in understanding the other person as a result of that growth. So I love those pieces. Thank you. Great talk. Thanks, Lou. You know, that reminds me at the end of this uh, section in Norman Fisher's book, he says, the last thing we want to do is be impatient with ourselves about practicing patience. <laughs> but that would be silly. So exactly what you said, Flo, it's a process. All of these, you know, they're, they're processes. That's why we call it practice. Um, but that's really key. I'm glad you raised that. Yeah, Jackie. Hi, good morning. Good morning, everybody. Glad we're all here together and healthy. And thank you so much for the time you took to prepare for this talk this morning. Um, what I really appreciate is understanding from your talk, just the impact that the precepts can have on anchoring myself. Mm -hmm. I like when you talked about, you know, the kind of what to do instead or when it comes up, you know, in this kind of the, how my reactions, I think you said, overtake my knowledge. And I, I think it's important to remember that if I have an opportunity to connect back to my ethics, connect back to the person that I am and how I choose to live, the bodhisattva way of being, it is a way to kind of flip the track, the switch on the runaway train of like my anger and just slow it down enough to just kind of reassess. Um, is this how I want to be behaving? Do I want to be overrun by reactions? And um, that's very helpful for me to kind of know what to do instead. Um, so I appreciate that. Thanks. Brian, we have time for one more here, yeah. One metaphor I use that I found very useful is walking the tight, the high wire. And the way I say it is if you think about the past, the past time, the last time you did it and how you felt about it, you lose focus on the balance in the moment and you fall off the wire. If you're thinking forward about, oh, when I reach the other side, I'm gonna be a hero, they're gonna applaud for me, you lose focus and you fall off the wire. But if you stay right in the present and on maintaining balance, and you never find perfect balance because the wire is always wiggling, you're always shaking, you're always working to maintain that balance, but you're only going to find it in the present moment. So that's a metaphor that I return to when I remember I'm always in process and I'm not perfectly balanced and that's okay. That's how it works. That's wonderful. Thank you. Uh, Chris, is there enough time for one more? Um, if, if you need to leave, please go ahead and do so. But sure, Mark, go ahead. Yeah, um, I have been dealing with much anger this past week. And um, your talk about it really has been helpful. Rather than putting the brakes on it, I've sort of let it, I've been letting it all hang out, which I said, well, that's better than letting, letting it all hold in. But really, it it's neither one is good. Being able to stop, look and listen and breathe and feel the energy 
intense energy and then step back, let it calm down is much more healthier. And I, I know that in, in my mind, but in these incidences, I haven't been able to, the mind has been hijacked by the emotion. I've been reading two books that are helping me. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh's No Mud, No Lotus. And just a little, um, what he, he says basically, through looking deeply, you can transform the organic garbage into compost, which in turn may become many beautiful flowers of understanding, compassion, and joy. So it's like all the difficult emotions, anger, and so forth, when we're with them with compassion for ourselves, they can be transformed into understanding and compassion and joy. Thich Nhat Hanh is particularly wonderful with metaphors like that. Yeah. Thanks for that, Mark. And I, I think just if, uh, what I hear you saying is, is that it's shifting for you already. So maybe you've been letting it hang out, but now I hear that it's shifting, so. Yeah, well, just listening today where I'm in a, not in the state of anger, <laughs> I'd be here to reflect about it. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you, everybody, for being here. June, did you want to say something? To I wanted to, yeah. Thank you for your talk. I love, you know, how you presented patience. One of my favorite things to practice because I yes. practice that one a lot. And just knowing also when you're in the heat of anger, you know, it takes a little while for that physical things to calm down. So just knowing that, so and being patient with yourself as your body calms down going for a walk and also that this practice that we have makes it so um so much easier to be able to see what you're doing it may take time may take a couple days when you're calmed down that you can actually go now why why did that happen to me just asking that question what's up what's up here it, it, this practice is so, I think, important uh, in, in helping us to do that.